Well, Providence, it is so good to see you. And if you are our guest this morning, uh, welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, It's uh, time for us to uh, turn in God's word. Uh, And um, uh, I just um, uh, am so amazed that we have this privilege. And and, uh, in in just a short amount of time, I just want to encourage you as a church family, um, as we meet and we gather and we do this Sunday by Sunday, and it's time uh, for somebody to come up and to teach this word, which uh, for this morning will be in Third John, and so you can actually go ahead and um, uh, uh, there. But but um, it is a remarkable thing; it's a miraculous thing, truly, that we have the Bible that's in our language. And I hope that you know that. I hope that you know that every time when we do this, even though it's something that's common to us, is that gratitude should literally swell up in our heart because there were people who literally had to translate this Bible into our language on the run. And the reason they had to do it on the run is because they had a bounty on their head. For us to be able to turn and to read the scriptures is an enormous gift. And there's a lot of people all around the world who do not have this privilege, not only this morning, but this week or this month or year, because the Bible is not translated in a language that, that they know. And so uh, it is truly a remarkable thing that we get to do. Now, about 10 years ago, I went to this conference and there was all these amazing uh, speakers, uh, nationally known pastors who were kind of all just pillars of the faith, uh, men who I respected and loved. And uh, and so uh, when, when we showed up, I got something like this and I started to kind of peel through it to see who was speaking one, and, and, and it went sort of like this. It said, all right, well, let's see, uh, David Platt. I said, all right, that'll be awesome. And then Matt Chandler, I thought, well, that'll be awesome. And then John Piper, that'll be awesome. And then Thabiti Anyabwile. And I said, who is that? <laughs> and how did he make this list? <laughs> just, just to be totally honest with you. And, um, and then... Thabiti, who is here with us this morning, who's going to teach from Third John, he, uh, he stood up to teach the Bible. Uh, and about an hour later, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, truly convinced of several things. Uh, first of all, is that this was a man who believed the gospel. Um, this was a man who, who, um, who, what he said, I believed that he believed, which was so critically important. But I also knew this at that time. I thought, this is somebody that's real. There's, there's, a, there, there's an authenticity. You can poke this kind of a man, and he's not going to break because he's hollow. That the gospel has truly transformed his heart to the place that it shapes who he is as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a, um, as a man who's seeking to engage even our own culture. And so it really is an enormous privilege that the man that at one time I said, now who is that? is the very first person, uh, guest, uh, pastor, that I get to invite up on the stage. And so if you would uh, join me, and let's say thank you for him being here. Thabiti. What's good, Providence? Uh-oh. So you're, you're the, the middle service. You've not yet committed to morning or lunch. Uh, you just... Trying to figure out what we're doing here right now. It's a real privilege to be with you guys this morning, and uh, thank you, brother, for that, that gracious introduction. My name is Thabiti Anyabwile. Loosely translated, it means 
who invited this guy, right? (laughs) Pastor Brian, it's interesting. You had that reaction uh, to my being involved in that conference. I had that reaction to my being involved in that conference. But the Lord has a sense of humor. Uh, So because you had that reaction, he made you pronounce my name as the first guest speaker. (laughs) It is a joy to be with you guys, a great delight uh, to be here with you for your missions festival. I don't know about you, but I've been greatly encouraged just to hear the Lord's work around the world and to see what he's doing through missionaries you support and to see what he's doing uh, through their ministries in, in places like South Africa and Nepal and Southeast Raleigh. And uh, we just praise God for being so kind uh, as to use um, broken vessels like ourselves. And uh, so it's a joy for me to, to celebrate with you. And it's a joy for me to celebrate with you because um, you guys have been faithful to share the gospel and spread the gospel for almost four decades now. When we were here some 20 years ago, part of a small team that planted a church just down the street there uh, at Crabtree Valley at the Holiday Inn, a church called Church on the Rock with a guy named Peter Rochelle, uh, Providence, and, and David Horner and the staff here were encouraging us, praying for us, um, and helping to meet some of the needs we had to do a gospel work with no sense of territory or competitiveness, but with a large heart in generosity. And so we praise God for you. You guys have left deposits of grace in my life. And so it's an honor to be here and to be opening God's word together with you. Can I say one other thing? I love your pastor. He's a good man. He loves God's word. He loves Christ. He loves his wife, his children. He loves you. And uh, what a wonderful gift it is when the Lord would give a church a long pastorate, uh, an effective pastorate for some 37 years, I believe it is, with with David Horner. And then allow in that time for that church to see their next pastor sort of raised up from within and assume the reins of the church with your support and your encouragement. Um, You you need to know that's a great blessing from the Lord, uh, and I rejoice in God's goodness to you and in the honor of sharing this pulpit. So let me offer a word of prayer, and we're looking at God's word. Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your many good gifts to us. None, Lord, greater than Christ, your son, whom you gave for our salvation, and whom you gave, O Lord, to redeem us for yourself. And we pray, O Lord, that as we draw into your word this morning, that you would draw us into Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would speak to us by your word. We are your servants and we listen. Help us hear, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to that little letter, 3 John. Or turn your Bibles on and scroll to 3 John, whichever whichever you prefer. Uh, We're going to settle this morning in verses 5 to 8, but I want to read the entirety of the letter for context. And we're going to be thinking about this morning what makes for a missions-minded church. And I want to suggest from this letter that there will be three things that we will see, but let's first turn and read the letter. 3 John, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. 
For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Well, this little letter uh, given to us by God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the writing of the Apostle John is much like the kinds of letters you might get from the mission field, from a supported worker, their newsletter, for example. They write to you and greet you and give you updates on uh, their particular ministry and things that are happening in their context. And then they will turn at some point to talk about recent activities and, and to give a, a few prayer requests or a few wishes. Well, that's not unlike this letter, and yet this letter also had an added dimension of a, addressing a problem. So, so John is writing to someone named Gaius, who is really a, a supporter, a missions-minded member of this church. The problem that you see there in verses 9 to about 12 is that there's somebody else in the church who's not quite missions-minded. In fact, he's a roadblock. His name is Diotrephes. He's a, word, a roadblock to the work of ministry. And what we want to focus on in verses 5 to 8 is Gaius and what we learn about his character and how what we learn about his character is meant to sort of shape us and to influence us in being a missions-minded people. Here's the first thing we see. To be missions-minded, we have to be faithful. To be missions-minded, we have to be faithful. Sit there in verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. And the first thing that, that John says to Gaius, he greets him in that tender term, beloved. And he says, listen, you're doing a faithful thing in supporting these brothers. Now, two things we ought to notice here about faithfulness. One is that faithfulness requires effort, doesn't it? You see how he puts it there? In all your efforts... For these brothers. So apparently Gaius is, is not the kind of guy who says I gave at the office. And Gaius is not the kind of guy that, that less leaves the missionaries to be served by everyone else while he goes on his merry way. Gaius is the kind of guy who rolls up his sleeves and gets involved. He, he, he puts a little elbow grease into it. He, he extends a little effort to care for and to support these brothers. 
Faithfulness requires effort. When you think about it in other areas of our lives, we will soon recognize that, won't we? We can't be a a faithful dad if we don't kick the ball with our sons, can we? I would argue you couldn't be a faithful dad if you buy him Carolina gear too, but that's another sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) You know, we, we, we can't be faithful spouses if we aren't loyal to our spouses and put the energy in to make the marriage work, can we? We're not going to be faithful, um, faithful employees if when we go to our office and get at our desk and get in before the computer, we're sitting there playing Candy Crush all day, right? Now, faithfulness requires effort. It requires energy. It requires that we uh, exert and extend ourselves uh, at a particular task. And in this case, the task was supporting and caring for the folks who are called here the brothers, Now here, these brothers is kind of a technical term. It's referring to uh, folks who are traveling uh, through the region, preaching the gospel, what we would call missionaries. And so Gaius has seen these brothers, and he has cared for them. And notice now, he does that not only with effort, but he does it with a kind of selflessness for these brothers. He doesn't direct his efforts solely at himself. He's not out to sort of build a name for himself. He's not out to to build a kingdom for himself. All of this energy that's that's expended, it's other-directed. The object of his energy is not his own name, not his own reputation, not his own bank account, not his own security, uh, none of that. The object of his exertion are these brothers who preach the gospel in lands far and near. Be faithful, we have to be selfless. We have to direct our energy in support of those who go, in support of those who build the church near and far. In fact, this is a biblical requirement. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, says basically, listen, think of us as stewards. Think of us as those who are stewards of the oracles or the mysteries of God, a reference to the gospel. Then he says this, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they discharge their duty with with effort and they discharge their duty with attention. That that what we are as stewards of the gospel are those who've been entrusted with something that we take care of. And the best way to take care of the gospel is to spread it. The gospel spoils if if it's only in our hands. I mean, it wasn't meant to be preached until it got to us, and then we bottle it up. No, it was meant to be preached until it got to us and changed us, and then we began to also spread it. And that's what Gaius is doing. He's keeping the gospel fresh, as it were, by spreading it, by supporting those who are spreading it. He's being faithful to the gospel by supporting the brothers. Second thing that we notice about Gaius not only that he's faithful, but notice here that a missions-minded Christian, a missions-minded church, well, they're marked by love. They're marked by love. Notice in verse 6. Well, let me read 5 and 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. That's striking, isn't it? 
These guys come to Gaius' church. Notice at the end of verse 5, that phrase, strangers as they are. Gaius did not know them. They are not uh, missionaries who were raised up from inside that church and sent out. These are brothers who are traveling. They probably have some letter of recommendation from uh, another apostle or another church. And and they come to Gaius and they say, we're on our way to preach the gospel to to people who don't know Jesus. And and Gaius receives them. Gaius welcomes them. and, And Gaius apparently loves them so tangibly that when they go away back to John or wherever they go to the next church, they testify to Gaius's love. They say, you know what, of all the things that we experienced while we were there with Gaius and the brothers and sisters there, the thing that was remarkable to us, the thing we wish to comment on, is that this brother loved us. And again, notice it wasn't love for people whom he already knew, or people who were like him, they were strangers. I love the way one theologian puts it. He says, basically, if we only love people like ourselves, then that may be self-love spread over a slightly wider area. But this love, this Christian love, this Christ-like love, it's not self-love spread over a wider area, it's love so encompassing, so limitless that it includes the stranger. It it welcomes in the unknown. It it embraces those people who heretofore have been unfamiliar to us, and particularly those who come to us who are looking to spread the name of our Lord. Gaius gets that. Gaius understands that. That when you have missionaries who come from Nepal or Sri Lanka or South Africa, or you got supported workers who are coming from um, uh, Southeast uh, DC, uh, we're in Raleigh now. I live in Southeast DC, and every city you go to, Southeast seems to be the same characteristic. Right? So Southeast Raleigh or Southeast DC or or wherever you go, and they come to us, and we love them, we care for them. We encourage them. We we sit patiently with their troubles and and quiet. We lament with them and and we rejoice with them. And that's what Gaius did. This selflessness, this love that he shows for these people. And by this he proves himself to be a Christian, doesn't he? Remember what our Lord said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35? Speaking to his disciples there, he says, by this they will know you're my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. All men will know that you are my disciples. So what a strange thing it is for a church to be uninvolved in missions and uninvolved in caring for missionaries. For a church to be loveless, we would have real grounds based on John 13 to question whether or not that's really a church. Whether or not the the life of Christ and the love of Christ and the spirit of Christ is animating and moving and blessing and using that particular local congregation, wouldn't we? And so what what an appropriate thing for us all to long to be like Gaius, to be marked by this love, to get it as it were, and to express it to others. Not to be like Diotrephes. You see Diotrephes? Diotrephes mentioned over in verse 9. Let's just call him D. 
See, D over in verse 9 says, I've written something to the church, but, but D, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy in the church. He wants to be first. He, he wants to, to be at the pole position. He wants to be king on the hill. He wants to be the big man in charge, right? And you notice, so much so that even when the apostles write to the church, the, the men handpicked by Jesus Christ to exercise authority and leadership over the entirety of the church, even when they write to the church, Diotrephes is like, you know what? Let me tear this letter up. I ain't reading this. He wants to be first. Notice what's said about him in verse 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So he even slanders the apostles. And not content with that, man's depravity seems to have no bottom. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to. And puts them out of the church. I mean, can you imagine having a member of the church who, when Providence has his missions festival, shows up grumpy, wants to be in charge. He kind of pushes George off the stage and he won't let, he won't let Dave O come up with his hand gestures and you no, know, I'm, I'm in charge. And, and, and you guys are wanting to welcome them and and he's, he's so not of Christ that he not only opposed the missionaries who come, but, but he opposes you. He won't allow you to welcome the missionaries. And, and if you insist on it, he marches you right out to the parking lot to your car and escorts you off the property. Can you imagine? He doesn't get it. It's like my family and I went to a, a concert, uh, a comedy concert, Tim Hawkins. I don't know if any of y'all know that name to a Tim Hawkins concert, had a great time. We were laughing for about two hours, just busting our sides. And at one point, I looked down the road, a couple seats down to my son, who was eight at the time, and he was just laughing and slapping his knee and just rolling, man. I said, this is great. So we're in the car and we're driving home. I said, what's your favorite joke? And my wife answers and other answers. Titus, what's your favorite joke? He said, well, I was laughing, but I really didn't understand most of it. <laughs> I said, well, why were you laughing? He said, well, who wants to be that guy? You know? <laughs> and that's how we should feel about diatrophies, right? Who wants to be this guy? Now, we want to be Gaius, marked by faithfulness, marked by love, and marked by a third thing, generosity. Generosity. See how his love expressed itself. Verse 6, the second part there. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. There are a couple things there that sort of mark out, if you will, the, the standard of Gaius's generosity. Notice, first of all, Paul says you will do well to send them on a journey in a manner worthy of God. Send them out in a manner worthy of God. What does that look like? What is God worthy of? Isn't he worthy of our all? Isn't he worthy of everything we have? Isn't isn't that what worship is? We, We are ascribing worth to God when we worship him. And that's what our giving is about. 
Every time we give in worship of God, we are declaring that God is more valuable to us than all the things he's blessed us with. I love the way one preacher put it one time. He says, God doesn't command us to give in order to get money out of our pocket, but to get idols out of our heart. Every act of self-giving, every act of financial giving, every act of ascribing worth to God ought to be done in a manner worthy of God, in a manner worthy of his name, in a manner worthy of his greatness, in a manner that reflects how rich and wonderful his love is. And even when we come to supporting our missionaries, we should support them in a manner worthy of God. There are many churches that have a strategy for supporting missionaries. And I think they mean well. It's not to disparage them by any means. And I don't, I don't know how you guys approach this, and so it's not in any way a, a rebuke or anything here. But their strategy is let's support as many missionaries as we can, which is great on one hand, but in order to do that, to actually support them at very piecemeal amounts. So they may have 100 missionaries that they support at $50 each. I... I Personally, I don't know that that's the best application of this text. It might be better that you support, rather than 100 missionaries at $50 each, that you support 25 missionaries at such an extent that they don't have to worry about where their support is going to come from. And they don't have to make expensive trips off the mission field back to the States and meet with 75 churches in order to raise support and feed their families. I think when we support missionaries in a manner worthy of God, we want to do it to such an extent that they can give their entire attention to the work of the gospel, to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to people who haven't heard it. And they spend no time worrying about whether or not they're going to be able to eat or provide for their kids or provide for an expanding family. Because holding the rope back home are people who say, we're going to do this in a manner worthy of God. Which is to say, we're going to be all in with all we have. So that's a question for us. Are we all in with all that we have in support of the brothers and sisters who go to make Christ known? Is the other marker of generosity that we see here. He says, support them in a manner worthy of God. And he says, here's why, verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They've gone out for the sake of the name. And because they go out in Christ's name, they don't accept anything for people who don't know that name and don't acknowledge that name and don't serve that name. They, they don't accept from the Gentiles, those who are not yet believers, Many of whom to whom they're going with the gospel. No, they go for the sake of the name, relying on people who know that name and love that name. And they proclaim that name freely to people who are lost without that name. So they go in recognition. We give in recognition of the name and we give in recognition of the need. And what a name. The name that is above all names. The name at which when it goes out, the sound of it, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. The only name given under heaven among men whereby men can be saved. What a name. 
the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, a a mighty name, a name which is a a fortress and a strong tower, a a name that is above, as we said, above all names, a name that is beautiful and wonderful, the name that causes demons to tremble, and, and the name by whom the dead are raised. It's that name that we call out in worship, and it's that name we serve in the work of missions, and it's that name that must be known among the nations, and it's people who are known by that name, and what a privilege that is, to be known by the name of God as belonging to him. It's the people who belong to that name who support the work of missions to the lost. I mean, hang around the auditorium are black flags this morning representing those countries where Christ is not known, where his name is not named. Millions and millions and millions of people who not only don't know the gospel and not only don't have a church established there, but there are millions of people for whom we don't know of a single church that has the purpose of yet reaching them. Unreached, unengaged peoples who are facing a Christless eternity because they don't know the name. It's our great task. It's our great joy. It's our great privilege. Having having come to know Christ, to now make him known and to give and to go in a way that's worthy of the name. That's that's what is commended here in Gaius. And that is what I think I can commend in you. I'm at your missions festival and and I'm just hearing the reports and talking to people that you support and recognizing this and even all the people that you support. And I'm nothing, I hope you are, I am nothing but encouraged at how God is using this church and how God will continue to use this church. Just as I think John is encouraged with Gaius. So he says on the one hand, verse 5, it's a faithful thing you do. He's already commending Gaius for his faithfulness. But he says on the other hand, in verse 6, you will do well to sin. The apostles have this habit when they write letters to churches. They will commend them for something that's good, and they will say, do it more and more until the day of Christ. And he says, you do well in the way that you have supported these brothers. Continue to do it. And I believe if John were writing a letter to this church and if Christ is speaking to you this morning, he's saying in part, you have done well, Providence. Do it more and more. It's a faithful thing you do in supporting the brothers. And you will do well to send them in a manner worthy of the name. All of that will be an expression of a Christ-worked generosity. And all of this is an expression of our having been impacted by the gospel ourselves, isn't it? So let me show you one other thing that's said about Gaius here. It's in verse 3. John writes, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Indeed, that word truth runs throughout this letter. You see it there in verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. You see it there in verse 8, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You see it down in verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. What's John talking about in all these references to the truth, to truth itself, to walking in the truth, to being workers for the truth. He's talking about the gospel. 
He's talking about that one overarching truth that hangs over every human life. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not quite sure of what we mean when we say the gospel. Let me try to explain to you briefly. Here's the whole story of human life and human redemption. It's in four scenes. In scene number one, God created everything that there is, including you and me. And he made us unique among all the creatures. He made us, the Bible says in Genesis 1, 27, in his image and in his likeness. It says it were that there's something about God that he stamped upon us to make us uniquely fit to know him, to love him, and receive his love. And he created our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden, a place that he had provided. And and that was a picture for, for what all of human existence should have been like, us living with God in a place where he provides. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. That means they disobeyed God. They they went their own way. God had given them specific instruction and they decided to do otherwise. And, And because they're our parents, we have grown up to be like them. We have become sinners too, all of us, everyone ever born. We were born in sin. And we have, like Adam and Eve, gone our own way and rebelled against God. That really is the large second scene that we're living in. The scene of rebellion and sin. But there's a third scene, and it's a marvelous scene. It's where God decides to do something about our sin and to do something about the judgment that's coming against us because of our sin. Specifically, he decided that he would end our sin and he would end our rebellion not by crushing us, not not by judging us, not, not by punishing us with the punishment we deserve, but he decided he would end our rebellion and he would end uh, the, the possibility of our suffering judgment by rescuing us. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, clothed in our humanity, fully God and fully man, to do two things for us, to rescue us. To live a life of perfect obedience in our place because we no longer could because of sin. And he did. He obeyed God's law perfectly, fulfilling all the requirements of God in our place. And number two, to pay the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. And he did. On the cross, when he's crucified, the wrath of God the Father is poured out on God the Son instead of poured out on us. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that he would rescue us from death, he would rescue us from the grave, and proving that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place. And now God calls all of us, fourth scene, to repent of our sins and to believe in this Jesus Christ and to follow him with the hope of eternal life. And he promises that everyone who turns from sin and confesses Christ as Lord and follows Christ in the obedience that comes from faith, there's so many benefits that comes from that. There's forgiveness of sins. There's the perfect righteousness of Christ being counted as ours. There is adoption into the family of God. There is is the the filling of the Holy Spirit where God himself comes to, to live in us. Can you imagine that? And there's the promise that he will keep us and no one will snatch us out of his hands 
And he will bring us safely home into a glorious kingdom where we will rule with him and live with him in his love forever. Beloved, that is the truth. We live in a world that's constantly telling us what's true for you is not true for me and what's true for me is not true for you. What's true for God is true for all of us, beloved. And it is God who has said there's only one way to really enter into life and that's through faith in his son. And you may be here this morning and you're hearing this for the first time and you'd like to know more or you may be here this morning and you've heard it a number of times but you have never confessed your sin and trusted in Christ. There's nothing we would like to do more than to help you understand this message and help you take your part in God's family in this story. We people after the service up front and outside at the next steps desk or maybe the Christian friend who brought you or one of the pastors, we would like nothing more than to make sure you understand this gospel, this truth, and to encourage you to follow Christ as Lord. And if you're here this morning, you're already a Christian, and maybe you're part of Providence Church, it is this truth that animates us, isn't it? It's this truth that propels us. It's this truth that keeps us, isn't it? We woke up this morning. We didn't keep ourselves through last night's sleep. Every, day, every morning we wake our eyes, we ought to be stunned. Seriously, we weren't thinking while we were sleeping, and our heart kept beating, and our lungs kept pumping, and, and we awoke this morning, and God Almighty, we awoke not under wrath, but under grace. We awoke not to God's judgment, but to God's love. And today, before the day is over, we're going to say something we wish we hadn't said to a spouse or a child. We're going to let somebody down in some way. Today, before the day is over, we're going to encounter our sin in some way. And guess what? We get to return to this truth that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross and Christ was risen from the grave for our justification. So we bear our sin no more. And we wear the name of Christ. In another letter, John thinks on this and he's amazed. First John chapter three, he says, behold, what manner of love is this? That we should be called children of God. And he says, and that is what we are. We're not just called children of God. That is what we are. And he says this, beloved, we don't know what we will be, but we do know this. We know that when he comes, we'll see him and seeing him, we will be like him. Not only are we children of God now, but when Christ returns and we see Christ, our transformation into the likeness of Christ will finally be completed. And he who began this good work in us We'll finish it on that day. And we want the nations to share in this with us. We want the nations to come and know this name and know this eternal life and be transformed. And we want to see that day that's promised in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 when all the nations and tribes and language are gathered together around the throne praising Christ the Lamb and God the Father. That's what missions is about that coming day when the nations assemble and Christ is glorified and we are glorified together with him. It may be the beloved, the Lord would have you go. It may be that he would have you give. But in either case, he would have us participate in this glorious mission. Let's pray together.
Father, there is no love like your love. There's no grace like your grace. There's no hope like the hope that you give us. An eternal hope. A hope that does not disappoint. A hope that rests upon the perfect life and the invincible life, the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, your son. And we would that all the nations would know this hope. And we would that we would be marked by faithfulness and love and generosity so that your name would be spread in all the earth. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to honor you, to exalt your name, and to see the people's rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.